0: Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. To we hope you enjoy the sermon. Place, anybody's welcome. Anytime to consider anything we talk about. Um, the reason we're doing this weird book called Judges in the Old Testament um, is because it's there. And I hope if nothing else... I hope you come back simply because we're doing one of the hardest books to look at in Scripture. Um, and one of the reasons we're looking at it is we're looking at it for the same reasons that for the same reason we exist and we meet every week on campus, is this: y'all all know this. Sometimes you believe it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes I believe it, sometimes I don't. Our dreams run out. We have a bunch of dreams, and they run out. And the deepest question at the end of the day when our dreams run out about your Stanford dreams or your relational dreams or whatever they are uh, is, will I be loved? Can I be loved? Is there something more? And that is the question that we're wrestling with all the time in here. And, um, and if there's another question that you're probably going to ask all quarter and you're definitely asking right now is, the other question you'll rightly ask all quarter is, what in the world is this doing in the Bible and why are we reading it? And you should ask that. Judges is odd and uh, and it's if you go read ahead you 'll find out in a couple of weeks we 're going to read about a king who's assassinated while he 's on the toilet um, this is in the Bible uh, we're going to read about people getting cut up and having their body parts sent around the kingdom uh, we 're going to read about chronic gamblers sex addicts all these kind of insane stories and I think they're This is the most bizarre book of scripture. And I think there's only two places that you encounter these kinds of stories. You encounter them in the book of Judges and I think there's one other place you encounter these stories and that's actually most major media outlets today. I think one of our problems when we read a book like this is we become historically arrogant and think, but our world's not like that now and that actually reveals our ignorance. I... Literally, sitting on my iPhone right before I got up here, I just said, I'm going to scroll through the front page of like three, like MSNBC, Fox News, all that kind of stuff. There were suicide bombers. There were governors going to jail. They're still reflecting on all the conflict between racial minorities and police, all that kind of stuff. There's war going on. There are people killing each other. These insane stories are present in our news today. It reveals our ignorance and our arrogance when we think, well, that was a primitive time and people were different then. That means you're out of touch. Um, so it, in some ways, you can look at the book of Judges and realize we're looking at 20 or so chapters that take place over, about a, over more than well over 100 years actually and then look at our news today and realize actually when you consider these stories just take place over 100 years, this might be less scandalous they might be more advanced than we are. They might have been a more peaceful people if these stories <laughs> happen over hundreds of years as opposed to just what happens in the past year on the globe today. So we're not going to be historically arrogant and we're, not going to, we're going to try to avoid being ignorant and we're going to try to hear some of these stories and struggle with it. And the reality is, too, is that the brokenness of the world doesn't just occur out there and we don't just encounter it in those major news outlets The reality is is that in a room with this many people, many of us have some dark and tragic violent stories. And I've heard some of your stories. And the reason none of us tell each other these stories is because we think no one else has them. We think, no, 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 we're Stanford people. Maybe you're that one, and you think you're that one person that has a dark and tragic and broken story. And you can't share it because you're afraid no one else can handle it. That you're the only person that's broken here, and that's not true. Judges is a messy book and the reason it's messy is because the world is messy and the story of Judges is that God is at work in a messy world in dark and tragic and violent broken places and this proves that Christianity is not some stupid saccharine sweet sanitized hope chest filling sappy philosophy for naive people it is God's response to a broken world. And everybody, whether or not you're a Christian, wherever you find yourself, everybody has a response to the brokenness of the world and the enduring question is which response is true and hopeful. So pray with me now as we consider how God interacts with the broken world. Lord, we thank you for these stories as odd as they are. And I pray now as we consider them that we wouldn't get distracted by just the ancient narrative, but we would see ourselves and our own hearts at work here but more than that we would see your heart at work here so be with us Holy Spirit teach us things from these weird stories in scripture your name we pray amen so what I want to do tonight is give us a little bit of an overview or an introduction to judges we're going to do that this week we're going to um, look at another kind of introductory matter next week and then we're going to start going through the different stories of the judges and the question I want to lead with and I think this is the I mean it's the most important question is when you're looking at God handle this story what is his desire for Israel? And that, and that question is also for us. What is his desire for you? What does God want for you? And I think that's the most important question you're going to ask in life. And I think the answer is this. I think his desire for you, just like his desire for Israel is this is to know his love. Is to know his covenant love. Not simply to know that God is love. That might be part of it to factually be aware that you can argue God is a loving God, but actually for you to experience his love. For you to feel it. To know it experientially, not simply intellectually. Paul ends his prayer in Ephesians 3 when he prays for the church and he says, I pray that you would have the strength to comprehend. He actually understands that understanding God's love, just to understand it you have to have strength. For the strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. What I hope happens when we read the book of Judges, which is the most messed up book of scripture, which is saying something, is that what happens is you begin to see deeply and honestly into the seat of your own being, into your heart. And you see that what sits at the root of who you are as a person, what you are dying for, is for someone to look at you and love you. For there to be an audience that sees everything true and deep about you, the good and the ugly, and loves you. And that what we're doing, a lot of times what we're doing, in fact, I think almost all the times that we're doing when we're trying to convince ourselves that we are strong, independent men or women, that we are capable of confidence regardless of what people think of us, that all that is is a mental fantasy that we preach to ourselves because we're terrified of being rejected. All this talk about self esteem and confidence and strong independence, those are many sermons that are lies that we're just telling ourselves all the time because we're desperately afraid of being rejected. And in Judges, what you see is a God of profound love for really messed up people. And the biblical word for messed up people is sinners. We're going to use that word, we're going to talk about what it means. And for you to be to be moved by and even to experience to actually feel the love of God, this is the first thing that has to happen. The first thing has to happen is an honest assessment of yourself. And what judges offers is it offers stories of violence and stories of gore and hubris and scandal and illicit sexuality and brokenness and addiction and cripples and foolishness, and that. We look at it and we might think, well, our culture has advanced beyond this. Because we see that at least on our campus, we live more sanitized lives than this. Right? It's not this messy. But when you read it and you begin to ponder these things and you begin to ponder your own heart, what I hope happens is that you actually see the seeds of this kind of evil lie in all of us. That while the full tree, the full manifestation of this kind of evil, this kind of hubris and pride and violence maybe doesn't manifest itself in your life, it doesn't come to full bloom, the seed is there. The seed is in all of us. And and as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of an interview that happened on 60 Minutes. This is probably the most famous interview in the history of that um, news magazine show. Mike Wallace interviews Yahil Denur, who uh, was a prisoner in Auschwitz. This, was, this interview happened like in the mid-80s. And um, Denor is famous for his testimony against Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the administrators, one of the, the key people in Auschwitz who murdered thousands of Denur's um, uh, people. And the reason that testimony in court was so famous is because he had a breakdown mid-testimony and couldn't finish. Denur did And Mike Wallace interviewed him years later about that. That testimony happened um, in the early, I think, late 50s, early 60s. Um, And he said, why did you have a breakdown in in the witness stand? Were you overcome by hatred? Were you overcome by fear, by hard memories? And DeNure said it was none of those things. But what DeNure told Wallace is this, is that when he went into that courtroom and he sat in that witness stand and he looked at Eichmann, he realized he was not a godlike army officer who had condemned so many people to their deaths. He looked at him and saw he was just a man like him. There was nothing special or godlike or super evil about him. And this is what Deneur said I had a breakdown because I became afraid of myself. I saw, oh, I'm capable of everything he's capable of. I think when we look into our hearts and when we look past our cheap defenses and that's what we need to call them our cheap defenses like denial or justifications like everyone else is doing it or comparison, I'm not like other people when you finally recognize that those just those little defenses are pretty cheap and pretty flimsy I think you'll start to see deeper into your heart and you'll become afraid of yourself I think the hardest moments in life is when you find out who you really are and all that optimism you had about really who you are comes crashing down. And You find out there are things about you you don't like that you can't change and you become afraid. And you're close to the deep realization that our whole lives are driven by this fear. I'm afraid that if the real me becomes known and is exposed no one could love me. And so we are covering our lives up with stories and successes and appearances to hide from that reality. And the grossness of what all of our hearts are capable of is put on display in Judges. It's visceral and it's violent, but it's what's in all of us. It's God's people and not God's people all doing equally heinous things. And I want y'all to see that most... Of what we're doing in life is hiding from and running from these two realizations. I'm afraid of knowing who I really am. And I'm afraid of anybody else knowing who I really am. Because I'm afraid I can't be loved. And Judges is a book of messy people trying really hard to be good. Endeavoring to be good. It's a great book to read at the beginning of the new year. Because there's this cycle that you're going to see drives Judges. Where Israel's like, this time we're going to be good at being Israel. And good at being God's people. And they are for a little bit. And then they're not so much anymore. And then they kind of quit after a while. And then then things fall apart. And that is the story of Judges, and that's the story of our lives. And what happens, what's miraculous about Judges, is that God continues to deliver them, and that He remains faithful. He's constantly coming near and delivering and loving them longing that they experience what Joshua said in Joshua 23 when he says, You know in your hearts and your souls that not a single word fails of all the good things God has promised for you. What is God's desire for you? God longs for you to know, down in your soul, underneath all the advertising, down in the deep place, A place that's down in that place so deep that the daily defeats and depression and insecurities, they can't unseat it because it's gone down deeper than those things. In that deep place, you know that His words of promise, none of them will fail you. And I can tell you exactly what that feels like. Because there are days and there are weeks when I go home and I leave this campus or I leave large group or I leave you and because of something I did or because of something y'all did, I feel unloved or I feel unlovable or I feel stupid and I don't like myself and I'm insecure and I'm anxious but there's one person's love who when I encounter it, it frees me from those dark moments. Elizabeth's love frees me from the condemning sense that comes because I did something stupid or I don't feel successful or I don't feel admired. If I have Elizabeth's love, I can endure almost anything. And God's love is that same principle writ large and much more powerful than even hers. If you have God's love, you have everything. And if you don't have God's love, no matter what else you have, you have nothing at the end of the day. And what God wants for Israel is that they experientially be grounded in all the blessedness that is His love for them. I am your God. You are my people. His desire for you is that you have His love And all the security and the sweetness and the joy and the gratitude and the warmth and the comfort and the ensuing worship that comes with that. And the next question then is what does he want from his people? What is his demand then from Israel and his demand from you? And to answer that question we have to get at it actually in an interesting way. And we're going to address all the weird things that Julie said over and over again that everybody felt uncomfortable about, right? One of the most uncomfortable aspects of the book of Judges is this God-sanctioned warfare that takes place. And Julie read over and over these stories of they didn't, the they didn't drive out the inhabitants, they didn't drive out the inhabitants, they didn't drive out the inhabitants, that you have these Jewish tribes moving into an area, and all the tribes they were fighting were different tribes of the Canaanites that kind of all fun, fall under the heading of Canaanites. And they would defeat them, but not drive them all the way out. And this is, their, all throughout Scripture, and at the very beginning, Judges 1, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites? There are these calls to possess the land and to drive out the inhabitants completely. And Julie reiterated, you heard, I want you to hear the repetition of how consistently Israel failed to drive out the Israelites. Now this is one of those bizarre things in scripture that takes a little minute to kind of sort through. But it's actually going to help us answer the question of what does God demand from us? And first, before we get into it, I want to say this. It's okay to not feel comfortable about this. If you're like, this is the God-sanctioned warfare of the Old Testament that I don't agree with or I'm not comfortable with. I would actually say if Scripture always feels good to you, you haven't read it accurately or understood it. The Bible should make you uncomfortable. In fact, you might could argue it should make you more uncomfortable than comfortable. So it's okay, and I would even say it's actually right, to be unnerved by some of the things that we read in it. Secondly, I also want to say this. In a broken world, in a world that is broken because of evil in us and because of systemic evil that we get together and create, sometimes wholeness and justice and healing requires warfare. That does not mean we're comfortable with it. We should, in fact, always be uncomfortable with it. And if you talk to anybody who is a combat veteran, I hope you do, you should get to meet some of those people. My grandfather flew B-17s over Germany. He dropped bombs in Germany. And he is convinced of two things. When he talks about it, there are two things that he talks about. He's absolutely confident he did the right thing and he is totally uncomfortable with it. He's absolutely confident that he had to do it. And he is totally unnerved by and uncomfortable with the fact that he had to do it. I think that's how we need to interact with this text. Life and ethics are confusing and hard. And don't be so naive as to think that the right thing to do will always be the feel-good thing to do. We're going to talk about that more later, but I just wanted to address kind of briefly how sometimes that's a frustration or a struggle and the other thing I'll say one more thing this is not ethnic or genocidal cleansing which sometimes uh, it's accused of being we're actually told earlier in Deuteronomy why God called down destruction on the Canaanites and this is actually what he says Deuteronomy 9 4 through 6 do not say in your heart he says this to Israelites in other words this is not God saying hey Israel you're good and the Canaanites are bad so you get the land listen to what he says Don't say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land whereas it was because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess the land but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. If you read about the Canaanites, if you read in places like Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 18, you find out there's incredible systemic incest and temple religious prostitution going on. There is systemic bestiality going on and they are sacrificing their children in the temple. They are systemically killing innocents. You know what we do in the real, modern, more advanced world today when cultures systemically kill innocents? We send the military to stop them. What they are doing, you actually agree with when they go and fight the Canaanites. And also in the Bible, when Canaanites, non-Israelites, in the land, turn to the Lord, they're spared and they're welcomed and received into God's people. This is not ethnic cleansing. Even Rahab, who of all things is a prostitute, is received and welcomed into the people of God. So this is not an ethnic thing. I just want to address some of the troubling things about that. Now, why do we talk about this to answer the question of what does God want from you? Right Now it feels really bizarre. How are we getting there? What God wants to, from you and wants from his people is actually dealt with in this kind of thorny, theopolitical issue of the Israelites driving out the Canaanites. Why does he want them removed? Verse uh, Chapter 2, verse 3, You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Joshua 24, 23, he said, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. We're going to talk about this more next week in verses 27 through 35. Right, they didn't drive out, they didn't drive out, they didn't drive out. And the reason that failure is so problematic is Judges two twelve. What happens is what God didn't want to happen. They ended up going after other gods from among the other gods of the peoples, from among the gods of the peoples who are around them. They gave their love to other gods, to other things besides God. That's why God wanted the Canaanites out, is because what he wanted from Israel is what he wants from you. He wants all of your heart, he wants all of their heart. He doesn't want to let them have any other gods. He has given them all of his affection, he wants all of their affection and allegiance. And what happened when they didn't drive out, and we're going to talk about this a lot next week, they didn't drive out the Canaanites. They ended up serving the gods of the Canaanites. And the, this idea of serving other gods is not foreign to us because it's true for all of us that we serve a collection of a lot of different things every week. We give our lives over to it. That means it's our God, and there's things are calling for our allegiance to make us happy. We're giving our lives over to things, hoping that they will make us feel complete and happy. Right? We're negotiating our allegiance and our love for work and for family and for body and for social life and for money. Those are our gods. We're giving our time and affection and allegiance and anxiety to them, hoping they will make us feel whole. God is telling the Israelites and He's telling us the reason that our spirituality and enjoyment of God feels so thin is not because the RUF songs are weird. That's not why. That's what everybody thinks. Maybe other songs are weird. They're like old. No, it's not why our spirituality feels thin. It's because our heart is divided. It's because we're holding on to a bunch of other gods in our hearts. And what He demands of us is all of our heart. You will not... Enjoy your spouse's love as long as you give room in your heart to other lovers. How would you feel if your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse said, I love you, but I have three or four other people that I need to give equal time and attention and intimacy to? You would rightly say, No, 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 I get all of you. That's what this relationship is about. You'd be right to be angry, you'd be right to be jealous. Notice these are characteristics we give God in the Old Testament when Israel chases after other gods, angry and jealous. We get upset about it, but we apply a different standard to God than we do to ourselves. Because we all feel righteous in our anger and our jealousy when our lovers go after other things. Well, God's no different. He wants all of your heart. He wants the Canaanites removed because He wants their gods removed. And you can't enjoy the love of God and you can't enjoy His heart for you until He has your heart. And even the warnings we read from Judges 23 are calls to give your heart to the Lord. They're calls back to the Lord. He's saying, Don't break this covenant. Only evil happens when you're unfaithful to me. Ezekiel 16, you should go and read that. It's the most graphic chapter in Scripture. Which is shocking after you read Judges to know that there's something more graphic. But in Ezekiel 16, God describes Israel as a woman who opens her legs to other men. And it's very graphic. And I'm actually, that's a softer version of what Ezekiel 16 says. It is a woman who chases after other men, opens her legs to many other men, and then this is what God says. He is so broken. And He says, "The Lord, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. You broke it. But I'm going to remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I'm going to establish for you an everlasting covenant. And I'll establish my promise with you, and you're going to know again that I am the Lord, that you may remember, and I love this, and be confounded and never never open your mouth again because of your shame when I because of your shame, when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord. It, it, if there's any time it feels like the Lord's being consistent, or sorry, inconsistent in Scripture, it's probably when He says, if you break the covenant, I'm gonna get you, and then you find out when you break allegiance and affection with God, He says, Oh, but I'm still gonna remember my covenant with you. That might be the only time you can charge him with inconsistency is the fact that he continues to remain faithful when he shouldn't and even said like, I feel like I shouldn't. The purpose of marriage is for you to mutually enjoy each other. And now you see that that goal is substantially inhibited as long as one person in the relationship gives portions of their heart to other lovers. God loves his people. He wants to enjoy you. He wants you to enjoy Him. What He wants from you is all of your heart. And so that means if you come to God with any non-negotiables, I like this Christianity thing, but i got some things that I'm not willing to be challenged on, you will experience, at best, just a trickle of the joy and freedom of being loved by God. Just like if you walk into a marriage saying, hey, I love you, I want to be married to you, but I have three other lovers that I'm going to hold on to, you will not experience marriage. You might be married, it'll be a horrible marriage. God's design for you, what He longs for you is to know His love. What He longs from you is to have your heart. And thirdly, what is His design for getting us there? God's goal in Judges... So you know his love. What he wants from you is an undivided heart. He wants to give you his love. He wants your love back. How do we get there? And what Judges, this is again kind of our our intro, Judges is a story of the steadfast graciousness graciousness of God. He's not just grace. He is grace enduring. Verse, uh, Julie read, chapter 2, verse 1, I brought you up out of Egypt to the promised land. I will never break my covenant with you. My promise to you, I will never forsake you. Stanford will forsake you. Your family will forsake you. We forsake ourselves. Your lovers will forsake you. Your body is going to forsake you. Your job is going to forsake you. All these things will leave you and fail you. God's love in Ezekiel is depicted as a scorned and cheated on husband constantly running after to save and to love his faithless wife. He intends to subdue His bride's heart with love and with grace by pursuing her. Things that have our hearts. Stanford has our heart, doesn't it? How did Stanford subdue your heart? I know this isn't comprehensive, but Stanford subdued our heart not by loving us. It subdued our heart with stories, uh, with fear and pride, right? Fear of failure. Right? There's so many threats to failure that you're willing to give everything you have to Stanford, right? And what it demands of you, and pride to be the best. That's how Stanford gave so much, real, gained so much real estate in your heart. Boyfriends and girlfriends grabbed a lot of real estate in your heart. And dating is the most fun, horrible thing in the world, right? It's fun for the first couple of weeks, then you find out it's fun, horrible for the rest of the relationship, right? It's fun, horrible. How did they get so much of your heart? This is, don't get upset about this, just listen and get the point, okay? And what happens in a dating relationship is you start to feel like you're committed to each other. And because you feel like you're committed to each other, you start to act like you're committed to each other. So you give time and attention and affection and intimacy with each other. But here's the thing about a relationship, a dating relationship. You know what the one thing it's not? It's not commitment. Don't get upset. You don't have to be dating each other tomorrow. That means it's not commitment. I can't leave Elizabeth tomorrow. That means it's commitment. There are months and years of hoops and drama that have to happen for our relationship to get broken. For your relationship to get broken, you just have to text a couple of words. (laughs) Do You get that dating's not commitment, but here's what happens. So much of your heart and your life has been given in that relationship. Why? Actually, because y'all unintentionally, subconsciously, don't get upset with me, y'all unintentionally lied with each other saying, oh, we're really committed to each other. You didn't do it consciously, but you feel in love and you feel committed when, in fact, you're not. And so all of a sudden you give each other everything, right? That's how your dating relationship, that's how your boyfriend or girlfriend got all of your heart. Y'all accidentally lied to each other about commitment. I'm not getting upset with y'all for accidentally lying about each other. We can talk about that later. Come to coffee on Friday. Exercise has your heart. How? It lied to us. If you get your body a certain way, you'll be happy with yourself. Exercise grabs a ton of our heart with that lie. Money has our heart. Pleasure has our heart. How do they get our heart? They lie to us. That's the main tool by which everything else gets our heart, is by lying to us about stories of what we can have if we serve it. God is after your heart. How does he go about getting your heart? Through the story of judges. He's after it by showing us that our hearts run amok and he runs after us. Our hearts run away from him and he runs after us. He we run from him, he runs after us, until eventually the beauty of his steadfast and gracious and pursuing love starts to take up real estate in our hearts. What a judge is is not a justice of the court, if you if you don't know this. In Judges, you'll find out we never talk about a court scene. They have nothing to do with law courts. A judge is someone who makes something right. That's the way the word is being used here. Someone who fixes things when people are broken. Someone who delivers. Someone who redeems. All of these are different ways of talking about bringing about justice, making things right in the world again. So the judges are actually deliverers. And a lot of commentators say this book should be called The Deliverers, not The Judges, because the word judge means something different to us now. So we're going to read about all these weird people, Afnil and Yehud and Deborah and Barak and Samson, everybody's favorite. He's not who you remember him to be when you read about him in kindergarten. Um, Go read the story of Samson. It's insane. They are people that God sent to save Israel. God wants all of your heart. He wants all of Israel's heart. But when our hearts run amok and when our lives run amok, He's so frustrated with us and He sends somebody to bring us back to deliver His people. And the judges are historical deliverers that only temporarily restore Israel. And what you find out is we need a true and final judge. A deliverer who will take who will finally take and fully take away all of, our report, uh, all of our approach? what the judges are is they're teaching us about Jesus. It's communicating to our hearts the love of Jesus so that we can understand and feel the power and the love of Jesus. Judges is the story of God continually responding over and over again to forgive and to restore and to heal and redeem and bring people uh, peace to people that habitually wreck their lives. That's what the story is. And what it's doing is it's creating muscle memory. It's creating a recognition pattern. So that when you read the stories of judges over and over again, ah, people fell into sin, they messed up their lives, and they cried out to the Lord, and they sent someone to take away their reproach and to make things right again. You read it, and you're going to find out it's cyclical. Well, it creates a recognition pattern. So that when you open the New Testament, you read the story of Jesus, and you realize, ah, this is the judge we always needed. He fits all these parameters, but He does it finally and fully because He takes away our sin and He conquers death, which are our final and full enemies. God's design for getting your heart is by grace and by self-sacrifice and by vigilant, undeserving, pursuing love. I hope I hope you come back to RUF tonight. The mustache drives people away. We can take care of that. Um, And I hope that you see REF as a place where anybody can come and wrestle with the easy parts of Scripture, the things we like, uh, like Jesus having children sit in His lap, and the hard parts of Scripture. I assume everybody's okay with that, right? Um, But also the hard and messy parts of Scripture, and I hope you appreciate actually appreciate the fact that we're going to trudge through challenging parts of the Bible. And one of the most challenging parts are verses 5 through 7 that everybody uncomfortably chuckled through. And that's where, uh, that kind of actually makes for a good conclusion. That's the story of Hadunai Bezik, which is actually a title, Lord of Bezik. And uh, he's an uber bad guy when he is caught. It is right for you to feel, and the Israelites sort of felt the same way that Americans felt when Osama bin Laden was uh, assassinated. He is a bad guy. And this bizarre punishment is doled out. And at first it's confusingly barbaric, but then Adonai Bezek, the lord of Bezek, he ex- he himself explains it. They cut his fingers and toes off and he says, "Yeah, this is about right. This is what I did to all the kings I conquered. I cut off their toes and their thumbs so God has repaid me." He actually understood justice. <clears throat> and the book of Judges is going to show us that it's not just the Canaanites and the Adonai Bezeks that are morally reprehensible and that are broken, but the Israelites too are full of sin. And none of the Bible confirms that Christianity is that there are good people and there are bad people, and God rewards the good people and punishes the bad people. That is not the story of Christianity. And Judges, maybe more than anywhere else, says everyone is badly broken. So the question then arises of what is the difference between Adonai Bezek and the Israelites? Well, there's two ways for you to decide to do business with God. You're going to approach Him one, two ways, regardless of where you are. Give me what I deserve, or give me what I don't deserve. Adonai Bezek looked around and said, Yep, this makes sense. I was violent, and I received like violence. Israel cries out, Who will deliver us? Give me what I deserve, or save me. And you can go through life and you can say to God, God, I want all I can get from the things that I give my life to. I'm going to do my thing and I just want that. Don't inconvenience me. Don't come in. Don't challenge me. I know what I want. I'll take exactly what I can get. I want what I can earn on my own. And to you, He says, you can have it. Or you can cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. I read the story of Kylie Lafferty this afternoon. She's a 22-month-old in Arizona this past January who fell into a septic tank. One of these, we always have kids falling into holes in the ground, right? She fell into a septic tank, but she actually is pretty, they're always traumatic. She sunk underneath the sewage. It was full, and she didn't resurface. Her mom was panicking, and a stranger ran and jumped into the septic tank. This is a hole in the ground, right, with sewage in it. Swims around, she's underwater, hasn't been seen for two minutes. Finally pulls her out, she's blue, she's not breathing. And the stranger performs CPR on her and revives her. It's just local news broadcast in Arizona. This is what happens when you jump into sewage and pull somebody out and perform mouth-to-mouth on them. You get sewage all over you and they live. That's the story of Judges. Because it's the story of Jesus, because it's the story of God's love for you. He wants you to know His love. He wants all of your heart. He will stop at nothing, even if it means getting all of our mess all over Him to give us life. And So the question before us is, do you want to stay where you are? Or do you want Him to dive in? Do you want all that you can garner for yourself with your strength and your capacity and your exceptionalism Or will you cry out for the grace and love of God? Let's pray.